Hey there. Happy Wednesday, everyone. My name is Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, March 18th, 2009. Thanks for joining me again today. I have I have not got a jam-packed show for you today. In fact, um, when I was putting this today's show together, I went to extra great efforts to try and not fill up my entire time because then I never end up then I don't end up leaving anything out and I don't feel like I've gypped anyone who I've interviewed or I've not shared with you all of the amazing arts content that is happening and going on about us here at UBC in Vancouver in BC in Canada in general so I'm going to get right to it. I have um, three interviews recorded today, plus a wonderful theatre review by my theatre critic, Paul Riviere, and that we'll get to that a little later. Plus, I am going to play all the music that I set out to play in this um, show today. Therefore, you will be hearing three different songs. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Um, so all of this is coming up. Um, but... Again, this is CITR. I'm Tracy Fuller, The Arts Report. Thanks for joining me today. So first off, this Thursday, Theatre at UBC opens The Idiots Karamazov by Christopher Durang and Albert... Albert Inaturo. Inaratu. Inaratu. Ah, these words. Ah, okay. I, I've been awful with these names all day, so please excuse me. I'm sure the gods are not smiling on me right now. But, um... The the play, The Idiot's Karamazov, is an antic, outrageous, and wildly comic send-up of Dostoevsky's classic novel, which follows the character Constant Garnett, an aged and feeble-minded literary translator who has difficulty translating the brothers Karamazov. Also on stage with Constance are characters that perform the story as she relates it. When the transition of the text begins to falter, the whole Western canon, canon is pureed before our very eyes. And when, when a press release tells me that the whole Western canon gets pureed before my very eyes, I kind of want to see it. So I uh, found some sound clips, and this is what it sounds like. This is a clip from The Idiots Karamazov by Theatre at UBC. Now everything's permitted, everything's allowed And God we have outwitted, we're moving with the crowd We see the soul as zero, we see the soul as split And no one is our hero, and piety is dead Dotted with literary allusions and intellectual jibes, the play pokes fun at figures ranging from Ernest Hemingway and L. Frank Baum to Leo Tolstoy. The Idiot's Karamazov is directed by MFA theatre director Chris McGregor, a theatre veteran from Vancouver. Chris has received a number of Jesse Richardson awards, including the Outstanding Ensemble Cast, Significant Artistic Achievement, the, Le the Larry Lilo Award for Outstanding Direction, and the John Moffat and Larry Lilo Prize. Chris has been the co-artistic director for the Theatre Bagger Production Company since 1993. In 1998, he created the popular Theatre Under the Gun Festival at the Vancouver East Cultural Centre. Chris was the co-artistic director of Carousel Theatre from 2001 to 2006, and Chris has toured internationally as an actor with many theatre companies, including the Great Canadian Theatre Company, Green Thumb Theatre, Axis Theatre, and Theatre Bagger. Earlier today, Chris sat down with me in our CITR studio for a quick interview, and here I have it for you. Enjoy. Joining me in the CITR studio today is Chris McGregor, the director of The Idiots Karamazov and a soon-to-be graduate of UBC's MFA Theatre program. Welcome to the studio today, Chris. Nice to be here. Um, can you start off by telling us or telling listeners a bit about The Idiots Karamazov? Sure. Well, it is a huge show. Mm -hmm. It's got two storylines in it. Uh, the first storyline that we see is about a translator by the name of uh, Constance Garnett. And she actually translated the, um, the Brothers Karamazov in 1912. So we meet her. She's 148 years old. <laughs> and she introduces herself to the UBC audience. Mm -hmm. She's uh, 2009. So here she is arrived in the present time. And she's telling us the story about how she translated it. And uh, being 148 years old, 
it gets a bit confusing for her. I can only imagine uh, that she's probably got a lot of details uh, to sort through in her mind. And uh, she mixes a few things up, and that's the way the story works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the plays written by Christopher Durang, Durang and, and Albert Inurato. Inurato, and the two of them went to Yale Theater School together way back when. In 1973, they met. Right. And in the original performance of this play, um, the title character was played by none other than, uh, was it Meryl Streep? Yes. Yep. Meryl Streep. Yep. And, um, so why, why this play? Why have you decided that this is the play that you wanted to put on? Well, I really wanted to work on a comedy. I really wanted to work on a black comedy. And I've always wanted to work on a Christopher Durang play. Uh, for about five years, I was working in children's theater at the uh, Carousel Theater. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of, you know, The Hobbit and these kind of nice stories for right. kids. So I wanted to do something completely different. So I found this play. It was actually introduced to me by Stephen Malloy. He said, here, why don't you try this play? So I read it and I loved it. It's crazy and it, it was done in 1973 at the Yale University. So it's a good show for university students and a good show for university students to see because it's got lots of literary references and uh, events like that in the play. So I said, this is the perfect fit. And I had a fantastic cast to choose from. Mm-hmm. And I have over 22 actors in the play. I was just going to ask, the, uh, Christopher Durang is known for having quite a f- number of characters and and um, the actors that you have chosen, are they all part of the MFA program here at UBC, or are they different in different... Yeah, they're not in the MFA program. Uh, they're in something called the BFA program. Okay. So there's three classes. Uh, there's the seniors, and then there's an intermediate, and then there's the... Uh, well, I guess we don't have anyone from the beginning or the first years, but they will get their chance later on mm-hmm. from other shows. So, And then I have BA actors as well. Mm-hmm. So all those, those, both of those classes are in it, and a couple of BA actors. Great. Great. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to ask was um, about Christopher Durang. He's well-known and well-loved um, for his highly comedic and brilliant written plays, but a lot of them sort of undermine or sort of expose the conventions of, of literature and um, of the way that theater works and uh, make fun of people like David Mamet and other things. Why, why are audiences so attracted to these kind of plays? Why is, why is Christopher Durang's work so stimulating do you think well for me i don't know about everybody's like but i like it because he takes the piss out of everybody (laughs) he like no one like especially this play like no one is safe Mm -hmm. and no uh culture is safe no like religion no relationship is safe Mm -hmm. everything is made fun of and everything is put out there is like you know what you're not who you think you are. You're human, and you make mistakes, and uh, just make fun of yourself. And I think that's part of the joy of it. Yeah. It, it's not – I'm wondering whether or not people who may not know that Dostoevsky wrote the original play or don't have any sort of – aren't in touch with literature, will they still get the jokes and be in – uh, that's the challenge. I mean, we'll find out. Um, I've directed in such a way that uh, I hope that – People who don't know all the references will still enjoy the story and find mm-hmm. it funny and find it entertaining. But if you know the Chekhov the Seagull, mm-hmm. Uncle Vanya, uh, Three Sisters, Great Expectations, if you know people like uh, Juna Barnes and Nightwood, mm-hmm. if you know Anais and all her uh, journals, if you know um, any, uh, Charles Dickens, then you... if. Freud, if you know any of these type of things, it'll be better. And oh, um, I'm hoping that if you, some people know these things, but if you don't know any of this stuff, I'm hoping you'll still have a lot of fun. Right. Well, I guess turning now to your program as an MFA director here at UBC, what's that been like? To, because obviously you were off working in the theater world here in BC, and you've had quite a quite a storied career working here with many different. Uh, projects and artists, etc. Why did you want to come back and do a master's of directing? I'm sorry, that's my phone. No worries. Yeah, go ahead. Um, That's it. It's okay. Okay. Um, Why? A very good question. Well, I was at Carousel for five years and um, had been doing all kinds of different work in small theater, larger theaters. And then I just went, you know what? I think I've hit a wall and I need to learn something. I need to find I, – I really wanted to come back here and learn a process, and that's what I've gotten. Right. I, I've learned um, more history about theater, more history about directors. Mm-hmm. I've read tons of books about famous directors, 
and how they worked and designers. I've taken some design courses. Mm -hmm. I just really wanted to open myself up to the history of theater a lot more and bring myself into that world. And it's been a fantastic journey. And the faculty here has been so incredibly supportive. And uh, I've enjoyed their company, and they, they, I think they've enjoyed mine, too. So it's been a great relationship. I sometimes wonder whether or not there's, uh, there's actors and directors that go out there without sort of a... Um a literary base or a, a knowledge base of what's come before in Canadian history mm -hmm. in terms of the theatre. And some, and there are pros and cons to both. Um, it obviously sounds like you feel like it's important for a director to know where he's, he or she is coming from. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's people, a lot of people come out of being an actor or being a stage manager and they've just gone through experience that way and like Dean Paul Gibson didn't go to school to become a director. He was an actor for many, many years, and then he just learned from other directors. And uh, I interviewed him, actually, and I asked him how he got into being directing, and he mm -hmm. just learned from other directors and had studied a few other directors, like people like Trevor Nunn, who's a, in England, and he appreciates that kind of work. So that's how he sort of styled himself on it, but he, doesn't, he didn't study it. Right. But he's brought a lot of his own work into it, and he's done an amazing job here. So mm -hmm. that's that's the way he's worked it. And I think that's pretty well the case here in Canada. Yeah, in I, I wonder whether or not, I mean, way back when, you'd always have, um, in the trades, for example, you'd have an apprenticeship with a master. And, and in some ways, I think that's how a lot of people way back when grew up in the theater. You were apprenticed, whether as an actor under a director or an, or. Uh, in other contexts, in companies, mm -hmm. for example. But these days, is there the same sort of apprenticeship pro uh, style or approach available? Uh, for actors, uh, yes, there is. There's uh, actually for equity, you have an apprenticeship program. Mm. Uh, you can go through these. You can go through a number of different shows. Uh, they have that at the Bart on the Beach. So you get the young actors come in there, and they sort of work their way up. Right. Or, and yeah, there's still that apprenticeship program happening, especially for actors, and for directors too. Where actors like Dean, for example, he apprenticed unbeknownst to everybody else by just watching other directors, and then that's how he learned, and he took what he liked from those several different directors, and that's how he worked it. So that's that was his process, and that was my process as well, mm -hmm. until I wanted to to go a bit deeper and and more history and more process, and so right. I, I got quite a quite a process <laughs> putting a play together. Uh, the process for this, I had to write an analysis. It's twenty five thousand words. Wow, it's huge. The, the the rigor that you go through to get every single detail. So when you have that document in front of you, mm -hmm. you have something to fall back on when you get in trouble. Absolutely. And so it's all coming to the stage. There's a preview tonight. Yep. And then the show opens tomorrow. Yep. Have you got any expectations? or? Well, we had a small uh, house last night. It's called Theatre 120. They came, and I didn't know what would happen. And for the most part, I think they enjoyed it. So... And again, they're all first-year students, second-year students, and they're, they're just getting into, like, getting to know Chekhov and things like that. So they didn't know a lot of the references, but they knew a number of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a couple of English students there who knew um, those literary re references, so they loved that. Yeah. So it was kind of fun to have them enjoying having those uh, references made fun of in front of them. So they had mm -hmm. a lot of fun. So I, I don't know. I, I, some people may love this. Some people may hate it. Some people, I, you don't know. But I, I hope everyone at least experiences it. Yes. I, I'm telling my actors, this is not really a play. This is a theatrical event. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things in it. It's pretty nasty, <laughs> really fun, and uh, it's out there. It's, I, I've kind of based the whole premise of the show in Red Nose Clown and Buffon as, mm -hmm. a, as a way into it and it's sort of followed through a little bit and I think the actors have done a, an amazing job bringing this to life. Well, I hope that everyone out there listening definitely goes and sees it. It's on at the Frederick Woodward Theatre right here on UBC campus. And uh, any, what's up next for you? Do you graduate this spring and then I hope so. <laughs> off into the big bad world? Yeah, yeah, I got a couple of projects coming up and okay. just still teaching here and there and doing other things. But uh, take it as it comes. And this has been a great experience. If I never direct again, it's okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure I will. It's, Absolutely. It's, there's some lots going out there. So. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming into studio today. And best of luck with the production. Thank you. So that was my conversation with MFA theater director Chris McGregor. The Idiots Karamazov by Christopher Durang and Albert Inaturo, Inurato, 
Ugh. <laughs> runs at the Frederick Wood Theater from March 18th to the 28th, and that's at 7.30 p.m. I'm sending my theater critic, Paul Riviere, out to check out the show for all of you tomorrow night. It's opening night. But for those of you who maybe want to save a little bit of cash... Tonight, they have a preview performance that's only $5. $5 at the door at the Friedrich Wood Theater. That starts at 7.30. Um, so head on down. And if you can't make it tonight, and you but you'd still like to get a set of cheap or, let's say, free tickets, I do have three sets of tickets to give away for the production. So if you give me a call here at CITR, the number is 604-UBC-CITR. That's 604-U-B-C-C-I-T-R. I will hook you up with a set of tickets for the Idiots Karmazov at the Frederickwood Theater. But and before we get to that, let's get to some music, shall we? Take two Haligonians who started playing music together when they were 12, add a third friend that they met in the halls of Concordia's music department, and what have you got? Plants and Animals. That's what you have. The Juno-nominated trio are playing at the Biltmore Cabaret tonight, right here in Vancouver. Their avenue, their album, Park Avenue, was listed on Pitchfork Media's Most Overlooked Records of 2008. And after an extensive tour of the U.S., Plants and Animals are finally back in Canada. So here's feedback in the field, because I love whistling, and I don't think there's enough whistling in music these days. From Plants and Animals, I hope you enjoy it.
Vancouver Theatre Sports League presents two new shows at the New Review stage on Granville Island. Opening March 11th, the tribe has voted. Improviver Granville Island is backed by popular demand. This Survivor parody sees eight improvisers stranded on the remote regions of Granville Island, where they must outgag, outlaugh, and outshop each other to avoid tribal council. Catch Improviver every Thursday to Saturday at 7.30 p.m. Don't miss Stretch, the non-stop improv show that squeezes every drop of comedy out of a single suggestion from the audience. It's improv that's harder, better, faster, funnier every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. beginning March 18th. Hey there, you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM right here in Vancouver. My name is Tracy Fuller and this is the Arts Report. This Thursday, Friday and Saturday night at 8pm, the TELUS Studio Theatre at the Chan Centre will be showcasing a new play by Vancouver's own Anita Majumdar. Billed as one of Canada's best on-stage talents, Anita was born in Port Moody and raised there by her Bengali Indian parents. She completed her bachelor's degree in English, theatre and South Asian languages right here at UBC. And then she went off to Montreal where she completed a three-year acting program at the illustrious National Theatre School of Canada. Since graduating from there, Anita has been involved in a number of projects across the country, including her own critically acclaimed one-woman shows, Fish Eyes and The Misfit, which previewed at last year's Push International Performing Arts Festival. In 2006, and this is how most of you out there may know Anita, she starred in the CBC made-for-TV film Murder Unveiled, which was about Jassy Sindhu, the young Maple Ridge woman who was murdered by her family after she fell in love and eloped with a rickshaw driver in India. Anita's work on that film brought the traditional Indian themes of honor and honor killings to her attention. And since then, Anita has focused much of her written, theater, and dance work on enlightening the public to the social differences which sometimes affect hyphenated Canadians. Yesterday, I caught up with Anita between her rehearsals for her new play, Aisha and Ben, which is opening, premiering, on the Telestudio stage this Thursday. Here's my conversation with Anita Majumdar. So, Anita, welcome back to Vancouver. <laughs> What's it like to be back at UBC again? Uh, it's, a little, it's a little weird. Um... You know, um, I, I did my undergrad here. I mm-hmm. was uh, denied into the BFA program here. Really? So some Oops. Interesting <laughs> memories here. Uh, I mean, I think I got the better deal because I, I ended up going to the National Theatre School. Right. Uh, but it's it's there's some sweet justice in coming back and um, renting out the... Uh, <laughs> Having the whole Chan Center to, to yourself. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I, the theater department is kicking themselves now. Well, I hope they come see it. I'm sure they will. I really do hope they come see it. And um, and when we say it, we mean Aisha and Ben, which yes. is your new play, which will be opening at the Chan Center this Thursday. That's right. And uh, for those people out there listening, can you, can you let us know a little bit about this new production? Because it is quite different from the last thing we saw here of yours at the Push Festival last That's year. That's right. Um, it's a little more lighthearted, but uh, I think the topic is... Um, one that we we don't hear a lot about, which mm-hmm. is um, the the idea of culture shame and and uh, skin bleaching, skin whitening, mm-hmm. and um, basically it centers around a uh, the character Aisha, uh, who's uh, Canadian-born, South Asian, and uh, goes to Bombay to become a big film, uh, Bombay film star right. because uh, she thinks that's where she can really be successful, mm-hmm. and uh, she returns to Vancouver uh, for the first time after her success to shoot her new international project and uh, runs into a Filipino-Canadian background dancer mm-hmm. who also wants to be a big Bollywood star, okay. and despite being Filipino-Canadian. And uh, he, he sort of seeks Aisha's help, and what ends up happening is an exchange in terms of understanding what kinds of culture shame are out there mm-hmm. and, um, and, and how do we move past it and how do we... I mean, how do we progress? 
Right. Actually. Um, and all set against a Bollywood backdrop, and so there's lots of dancing, like Lovely. my previous work. And music. And, and lots of music. <laughs> there can't be any dance without any music. Right. Um, I, it, it's interesting, this, this whole skin bleaching phenomenon, and, and this is in the press release as well, but in different cultures outside of North America. I mean, it's not just in India or in Bombay. Um, this idea of whitening the skin, you can even get products from the body shop here in Canada. The idea of just bleaching skin it crosses so many cultures and, and is really a weird phenomenon. When did you first... Uh, when were you aware of this? I, I know I ran into it. I lived in Korea for a while, and that was right. the first time that I'd ever yeah. heard that this was a, a desirable thing to do was bleach your skin. Well, I mean, it's, it's all across Asia. I mean, mm-hmm. you go to the, I mean, somewhere as international as Singapore, mm-hmm. where it's it's just a city really in Asia built for, for a Western market, mm-hmm. and it's incredible. Like, I mean, the, the products there are just, I mean, it's just, like and brand names that you find here, right. like L'Oreal and Garnier. I mm-hmm. mean, they're the same people who make um, sort of brown bronzing and tanning creams here, mm-hmm. are making skin whitening creams in Asia. Right. And uh, I mean, I came across it uh, probably really, really early on in my life, and I'm I'm pretty familiar with this sort of aspiration for fair skin because I mean that's just it, it's it's so so fixated in in South Asian culture. I'm not mm-hmm. saying every family believes in it, right? But it's it's a predominant theme. I mean, it's really ingrained in us as mm-hmm. kids. And and I remember seeing Fair and Lovely um, in the stores and asking my mom what it was, and she mm-hmm. told me it was, it was, you know, it's just it helps you be become fair, but it doesn't actually work. Right. But there are creams out there that that do work, mm-hmm. but they just have a higher level of 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 chemicals that you just, I mean, they're not FDA approved here. Mm-hmm. You have no. to get them in in Asia. Mm-hmm. And do you, in in the play, Aisha and Ben, I mean, what about Ben? He's a Filipino-Canadian. Is there the same sort of desired um, uh, desirability of a lighter skin for him in his in his culture for the, the in the context of your play? Um, I mean, his his take on to the, the the end of culture shame is is a little different from Aisha's, mm-hmm. but he does speak to it certainly in the play. Right. Um, but. I mean, overall, I mean, the, I mean, you get skin whitening creams in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. I think whenever I talk about this with with other other you know nationalities other than South Asian, it's um, it's pretty familiar. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that it's different. I mean, and that's why I think um, having these two particular people meet and speak um, based on their experiences isn't a far stretch because I think it's a it's a larger topic than give it credit for. Right. So, no pun intended, on the surface, the Aisha and Ben does sound quite different from your previous productions, The Misfit and Fish Eyes, both of which were one-woman shows that you put on. How how did you get from The Misfit to Aisha and Ben? What was the, the process you went through? Um, well, actually, Aisha and Ben was the play I started writing after Fish Eyes. Okay. And um, and actually, the character of Aisha was, I mean, it's the, the, the sort of the basis of her was a character that was developed through Fish Eyes. Okay. And then we realized that she needed her own play, that it was just, it wasn't the right play for her to be in. And mm-hmm. we, we took her out of Fish Eyes, and Fish Eyes became its own entity. And I started writing Aisha and Ben, and it was, uh, it was actually with the playwright's, uh, theater center here in Vancouver, okay. and I was commissioned to write the piece, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was great because I got a real chance to take a crack at it and um, really discover that I wasn't writing the play that I really wanted to write. Hmm. I was really trying to write Fish Eyes Part Two, right? And I had no interest in doing that, and so I, I took some time away from it. And I mean, I was like, obviously, I started working on the Misfit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I returned back to this, realizing that it was what I was writing was actually more complicated. Mm. And I even think what I'm trying to write, I haven't fully landed on it mm-hmm. in this production. I'm, you know, it's this is completely a in development piece. Okay. Um, but what I I love doing is um, developing my work through performance. So the audience tells me where it where it needs to change, and mm-hmm. I mean just through playing it for them night after night. So um, it's 
it's been a real long haul with this show. Hmm. And I know it's, <laughs> we still have a long haul in, ahead of us. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I'd say at least four years hmm. of just trying to get this on its feet. Because I was going to say, I noticed that it, it did debut at Summerworks in Toronto last year. It and didn't, actually. Oh, we didn't actually it? We pulled out. And, oh, okay. Um, I don't think they took our name off the no, it, program. No, it's still it's still online. <laughs> yeah, no, we didn't. Uh, we, uh, I just didn't think it was ready. I okay. thought we were trying to do it too quickly. And so, will this be the first time it'll hit the stage? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, getting that audience feedback will be a real, um, a real benefit, I guess, to Absolutely. to the development. And I mean, the play is set. I mean, its landscape is set in Vancouver, so it's, mm-hmm. it seems appropriate mm-hmm. to have it in Toronto or sorry have Vancouver it. right um, so I'm I'm really really excited to share it with and share it for the first time here in Vancouver right and it and will it be in previous interviews you said that that the fish eyes and the misfit were part of a trilogy is Aisha and Ben the end of that trilogy no no, no. Um, okay. the end of the trilogy will will be another one-person show okay yeah Okay, so speaking to that then, um, how did how did you get your your co-actor Ben is Leon Orias, is yeah. it? And how did how did he come in in how did he get involved in this production? Because you have been very much a solo performer in the pieces that you've written thus far. What was it like to get to have a, a secondary character who is not yourself? Because you have embodied both men and women and multiple men and women in your previous productions. Absolutely. Um, well. I mean, it's different, but Leon and I are also really good friends, but mm-hmm. I, I, I really respect Leon as an actor, and um, I've seen his work before. He's also an I mean, acclaimed writer. He's, he wrote Banana Boys, which is right. much celebrated here and much Absolutely. performed here. It had well. an amazing run last year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so um, also talking to Leon about, about this issue of skin whitening, I mean, he has his own feelings on it, and to... To be able to enter into a like an open discussion and open dialogue with with the person that you're also acting with mm-hmm. and you're also writing for, right? Uh, it's it's a really nice relationship to have. Leon is also like dances like nobody else, <laughs> so it it was nice to be able to work with someone who already sort of had his own dance groove going on mm-hmm. and be able to sort of just to be able to go in there and start working on the choreography for this show. And he's so open, and right. so so lovely to work with. And, um, and like I actually met him through my my partners, um, like he and my partner are actually really really close, and so we sort of met through that. We mm-hmm. became closer through that, and um, and now we have our own friendship and our own sort of working relationship with each other, which is it's so great. I mean, so much of this play is Leon. Fantastic. So so I guess m- my final question was going to be what what what's next? This is a very short run you have on here at the at the Chan Center this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to be sticking around the hometown for a little while? Or? I, I'm actually going to take my first break. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I, I go to Stratford in the summer, mm-hmm. and uh, so I get about two and a half months off, and I barely get to be at home in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to stick around for a couple of days. Uh, to see, uh, spend some time with my parents and then get back and enjoy the home that I <laughs> am trying to pay off. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, Nita, thank you so much for taking the time to, for speaking with us. Welcome again back to Vancouver and back to UBC. Thank you. Best of luck with the production this weekend, and I hope that everyone out there in CITR land heads on down to the Chan Center. It starts this Thursday at the Telestudio Chan Center, and uh, it runs until Saturday night, I believe. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Thank you. That was my conversation with UBC's own Anita Majumdar. Her new play, Aisha and Ben, opens at the Telestudio Theatre this Thursday night. That's tomorrow at 8 p.m. And tickets are available at the Chan Centre box office. Back to some music now. Vancouver's own Zaki Ibrahim is playing a gig tomorrow night at the Biltmore Cabaret before she heads down to Austin for the South by Southwest Festival. Her R&B music is captivating and vibrant, thick with poetics and steeped in a delicious mixture of earnest emotion and social commentary. Her latest album, Eclectica, Episodes in Purple, was nominated for a Juno this year, so here with the money track is Money by by Zaki Ibrahim.
by shapeless fears. Who can live in the modern world without catching his share of them? I hope I've landed on my feet this time. Need a place to rent? Have a place for rent? AMS Rents Line can help. AMS Rents Line is an easy-to-operate, touch-tone, and web-based system that connects thousands of landlords with UBC students looking for off-campus housing. UBC students can search the ads for free or place a two-week posting for $5. To view current listings, visit www.amsrentsline.com. Hey, welcome back. This is The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. It's about 20 to 6 now, and I made a mistake with that Zaki Ibrahim uh, track. That's not money, although... The track that she is nominated for a Juno for is called Money. The, plaque, the, the track that I just played was called Computer Girl, and it is found on her latest album, Eclectica, Episodes in Purple. 
All right. So um, last week I sent my fantastic theater critic, Paul Riviere, out to catch the Arts Club's new performance of a Tom Stoppard play called The Real Thing. Now, unfortunately, uh, Paul is rather sick today, so he emailed in his review and I've read it. But I thought that I'd uh, call up the help of uh, some old school uh, Vancouver rockers called the Pointed Sticks. Um, who were a Canadian punk rock or power pop band from Vancouver um, way back when. And they have a really great, fun uh, track called The Real Thing, which happens to be the name of the play I asked Paul to review. So here, accompanied by um, by the pointed snick, sticks and uh, read by myself, is a theater review of The Real Thing by Paul Riviere. I hope you enjoy it. Tom Stoppard has been acclaimed as one of the most important dramatic writers of the late 20th century. His play The Real Thing is now playing at the Arts Club's Granville Island stage until April 4th. The play focuses on the character Henry, who much like Stoppard is a successful playwright. Henry is married to Charlotte, an actress who is currently playing the lead in his play The House of Cards. However, Henry has fallen in love with another actress, Annie, who he is having an affair with. When they are found out, Henry leaves his wife, Charlotte, and moves in with Annie. However, lingering in the back of his mind is the nagging question, is his new love the real thing? The Real Thing itself, the play, was actually written in 1982 and has won numerous awards in England's West End and on Broadway. After seeing the Arts Club's production, it's not hard to see why. The play is filled with comic pacing, insightful irony, intellectual wit, wicked sarcasm, and playful dialogue. Even the structure of the play is heavily put to use, exploiting the theme of a play within a play, so that what the characters are saying and doing while in the roles of other characters offers new and often unexpected insight into their current situation. What Paul particularly liked about The Real Thing was its honesty. Although the play focuses on the relationship between Henry and Annie, it also encircles Annie's relationship with a Scottish soldier imprisoned for burning a memorial wreath during a protest. The questions of morality and injustice are also woven into the discussions of love and fidelity, so that when Annie starts to develop a close relationship with the younger actor Billy, who she is in the play with, Henry is forced to examine what Annie means to him and what he must do to keep her. Henry's questions are mirrored against the unjust imprisonment of the Scottish soldier. Henry's struggle to determine what love means to him ultimately leads him to answer his own question. What is the real thing? The Arts Club's production of The Real Thing is well directed by Michael Shatma and features some excellent performances by Vincent Gale in the role of Henry. Jennifer Lyons in the role of Annie, Simon Bradbury as Max, Julie McIsaac as Debbie, Jennifer Clement as Charlotte. Also special kudos to Charlie Gallant, who delivers a very charismatic and charming performance as Billy. Paul found the only distracting aspect of this production was the set designer's decision to present an almost entirely grey set. This presents the characters against an extremely aloof environment giving the impression that the ideas and the words were the focus of the performance rather than the characters themselves. In support of Henry's struggle to find the meaning of love, Paul would have enjoyed seeing a hint of colour. Aside from that, the Arts Club delivers an outstanding production of The Real Thing by Tom Stoppard, and Paul strongly suggests that you head out and see it. The Real Thing is playing at the Arts Club's Granville Island stage until April 4, 2009. For the Arts Report, this is Paul Riviere's report on Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing.
thanks as always to my fantastic theater critic Paul Riviere for that wonderful review and thanks to the pointed sticks for making such an awesome song to uh, background his review um, moving along, if you're loitering around West 8th Avenue and Ontario Street tonight, you may notice a bunch of film buffs gathering in and outside the Anza Club. That's because the monthly Celluloid Social Club meeting is happening there tonight. What is the Celluloid Social Club, you ask? Some type of weird science, perhaps? Not quite. The goal of the Celluloid Social Club is to provide a forum for filmmakers to share their completed films with an audience. After each film, there is a Q&A so filmmakers can gain feedback on their work. But the Celluloid Social Club also gives audience members an opportunity to view short indie films and interact with their filmmakers. Tonight's show will feature no less than five short films, a behind-the-scenes video of the second Rain City 72-hour film noir competition, a selection of short films from the 2008 Whistler Tellus World and Ski Snowboard Festival 72-hour filmmaker showdown, plus the Celluloid Social Club will be launching its third annual Hot Shots Short Film Contest. Now, this is no new thing, people. The Celluloid Social Club has been presenting shorts and feature independent films monthly since November 13th, 1997. The club was founded by Paul Armstrong, Jean, Jean Harnco, and Kathy Black. Earlier today, I talked with Paul Armstrong about the club's narrative arc, its highlights, and its future. Here's my conversation with Paul. The Celluloid Social Club dates back to November 1997. Can you share with me the story behind the club's beginning? Yeah, well, I, uh, I've been involved in screening films for about 13 years now. I, I was working at the Vancouver Film School, and someone suggested that I start showing student films from the Vancouver Film School, and so I started showing those. And then that sort of progressed into showing indie films. Mm -hmm. And then uh, someone else was starting a group and asked if I would join them. And together we created the Celluloid Social Club and had her first screening in November 1997. Mm -hmm. But then uh, those uh, two people, Kathy Black and Jeannie Harko, uh, quit. So then I was left with the club, and I've been running it ever since for uh, over 11 years now. Yeah. Has it, did it start off at the Anza Club, or is that venue come along over time? Our very first screening was at another location, but that one actually got raided by the police on our opening night. Oh, really? And uh, shut down after the screening, so what? we had to vacate that place. What happened? Why were the police called? You were that popular? Well, they weren't called. They knew about it. No, well, they came in undercover, actually, looking like uh, film nerds with little backpacks and uh, mm. looked like they were enjoying the films. But then once we broke out the beer, they then confiscated everything and uh. Uh, shut us down because <sighs> the place was being used as a uh, all-night rave club, and so they were cracking down on those at the time. So we got caught up in that. But then our second screening was at the Anza Club, and uh, for six months we went to a club downtown, but it uh, didn't really work out, so we went back to the Anza Club and been there ever since for about 10 years now. Oh, great. Yeah. So so how has the, the, the goal of the club, I should say, is um, to bring filmmakers and audiences together. How, has that changed a lot over time? How, how has the, the club sort of grown over your decade plus? Well, um, yeah, I'm surprised that so many people still want to come out to watch short films, especially mm -hmm. since so many of them are online now. People mm -hmm. can just watch them at home, but seems like they want to experience them with other people. I think it's the social side of it that they're also going to the club for, the celluloid social club. So we try to encourage people networking and socializing and partying as well because that's often how uh, film relationships are, are made and teams get together for other projects, yeah. meeting together. When I when I read about it first on the internet, it really did sound like it was, it wasn't. It's not just about the audience coming, but it's really facilitating filmmakers being able to sort of put their films out there and really get a sense of how the audience responds to it. And perhaps it sounds like this has been the the testing ground for a bunch of films over the years. Yeah, definitely. People have told me that our audiences are the best because they're there for short films. A lot of them are short filmmakers themselves. They uh, they know. Um, how if they were a filmmaker, they'd want to be treated. And uh, we often do get the filmmakers out, and they do a Q&A afterwards, after each film. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it, uh, it's a real bond, and then people often go up to the filmmakers afterwards and try to work on their next projects. And, right. 
Yeah. So when, when you arrive at the Anza Club, you pay $5 at the door, and then you get a membership. Is that a membership for life, or what, what does a no, membership No, membership for that, for that evening. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, $5 including membership, and, uh, yeah, and then people um, watch films, but they can also, uh, it's in a bar, so they can drink as well, mm -hmm. and they also um, are able to, uh, yeah, mingle afterwards and before the films, and are there, make connections. are there lots of people who have been coming out for years and years and years on end? I mean, there must be a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, we have regulars that do come out. <laughs> uh, yeah, some people have been coming out for years. and then But we also get new people every show as well, right. the film students. and uh, Yeah, wide mixture. But not, it's not only film people. We get general audience as well. Mm -hmm. so it's a cross-section of students, filmmakers, experienced filmmakers, actors. Is there any... General audience. Is there any... I mean, over time, you must have had so many different people and different screenings there. Is there any particular memories that, that come about when you think about how the, the club has been functioning over time? What's one night that, other than obviously the first night, which seems rather memorable, yeah. <laughs> um, what are some of the highlights that have happened over the year for you? Um, some of them have been when Bruce McDonald has come out to All show right. his films. Mm -hmm. So we showed his early films as well as his feature film, Claire's Hat, which didn't get distribution, so he wanted to show it at the Celluloid Social Club because he enjoyed it so much. Cool. So he actually came to the show twice and showed his films. Huh. That's great. And, yeah. And I've had other celebrities as well. One time Robin Williams dropped by. <laughs> yeah. No way. And actually brought a film to show as well. What was the film about? Uh, it was uh, a friend of his doing a, uh, a play in Dublin, in Ireland, and uh, he wanted to show that. Did he mention <laughs> how he found out about the Celluloid Social Club and what was he doing in town? <laughs> uh, well, he was actually filming night at the museum, but he was actually uh, a friend of one of my friends, so she brought him along. Awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. And and along with the, the just the viewing aspects, the monthly meetings, you also host a bunch of uh, sort of specialty contests. For example, uh, this this time around, this month, you're going to be talking about the Hot Short Shorts Film Hot Contest. Hot Short Shorts Contest. That's there right. There we go. Yeah, tonight's the official launch. April 1st is the submission uh, opening date where people can submit a 10-page script mm -hmm. and then... Uh, a final script will be chosen to be made into a short film and we'll supply most of the materials and services for that. We've already done it in the past two years and had mm -hmm. two film. One of them's in post-production. The one in the first year, The Bar, did really well. Lots of film festivals around the world. So that's April 1st is the first deadline submission. Right. It goes till June. Awesome. Yeah, but also run the Bloodshots Horror Short Contest. In, What's uh, that about? People have uh, 48 hours to make a short horror film. <laughs> we screen them. And then in the summer, I run the diesel film racing, which takes place around North America in about 17 cities. And I run the Vancouver one, and people have to make a film in 24 hours. Oh my gosh. And then they get uh, screened at a, at a theater and uh, compete with other cities around North America. That's amazing. Well, definitely there's lots of things for people to look out for. And if, if people want to drop by tonight, uh, what have you got on the roster for tonight's filming? Tonight we've got uh, a variety of short films and uh, other contest films. There's so many film contests in town. We're showing some of the winners from some of those. But we've got The uh, Light of Family Burnham, which won the MPPIA Short Film Award, which is a very large uh, award for short films and playing that. Mm -hmm. And Conversation with a Supplicant by uh, Mark Lewis, who recently directed Val Kilmer in The Thaw. Cool. So he'll be there with uh, his latest short film, as well as our regular The Imposter, David Stanfield, who does uh, crazy stunts around the world and uh, videos them. And... Uh, and then we screen those. Awesome. Well, then I encourage everyone listening to head on out there. Thank you, Paul, so much for talking with me. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll talk again sometime very soon. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. The Celluloid Social Club meets tonight and once every month at the Anza Club. That's at number 3 West 8th Avenue in right here in Vancouver, B.C. Admission and membership is $5 at the door, and the doors open at 7.30 p.m. tonight, and the shows start at 8 p.m. Paul told me to tell everyone out there that seating is limited, so if you're going to head out, you better arrive early so that you can snag yourself a good seat. And if you want to know more about the Celluloid Social Club, they've got a website. It's www.celluloidsocialclub.com. And segueing out of that interview into our last musical track for the day, here's a bit of Vancouver history for all of you out there. Did you know that the Anza Club, that's where the, social, the Celluloid Social Club is meeting tonight, dates back to 1935 
when a group of Australians and New Zealanders came to Vancouver. Yes, the Anza Club became their home base for the, their association, and they used it primarily to meet and greet visitors right here in Vancouver. So, a little bit of Vancouver history attached to the Anza Club. And the reason I continue on this Anzerific tangent is because um, this Friday at the Anza Club, Vancouver, Ghost House, and The Safety Show are playing a gig. And like the other bands featured that night, Ghost House hails from Vancouver. The band members are a combination of two longtime rival bands, Operation Makeout and the WPP. Their combined sound is a fun, unpretentious, let's play in the basement and everybody can dance on the linoleum floor in their socks type of music. And if you can't make it out to the Anza Club this Friday for the Ghost House show, don't worry, Ghost House has another gig lined up at the Media Club on March 30th. So here with their track Modern Manners is... Ghost House on CITR 101.9 FM. Pull the plants and animals. I mean, ah, sorry, Ghost House down to say goodbye to you. Thank you again for tuning into the Arts Report this week. If you want those free tickets to the Idiots Karamazov, write to arts at citr.ca and I'll hook you up with some tickets for any night you want to head out. My name is Tracy Fuller. This is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Coming up next are Julie and Eric with audio text. I hope you have a great week, a great weekend, and uh, thanks for tuning in as always. The UBC Ski and Snowboard Club is a non-profit, democratic, student-run organization dedicated to promoting the sports of skiing and snowboarding and the associated lifestyle. We endeavor to make skiing and snowboarding accessible and fun by actively seeking out the best deals and discounts for our members, as well as organizing trips to local ski areas and setting up new social events. Come on one of our legendary trips and explore the glory of riding in British Columbia, or join us at the bar to discover the true meaning of debauchery. Ask your roommate, ask your parents, ask the RCMP. Who has the most fun at UBC? You'll get the same answer. The Ski and Snowboard Club. Joining the Ski and Board Club is easy. Come by our office, sub 115, anytime with some money to become a member. Your membership gives you access to all the deals offered by our sponsors, cheap beverages at our parties, an invitation to all club events, and of course, only members can come on the trips.
Black Bull. Elvis is Alive, National Examiner, August 1986. This will be the last summer we spend outside here, the one great patio bar with pool tables, a severed bull's head, and room upstairs where William and Marjorie once sold books and scraps of paper for dope, cooking one potato each day, the sun blocked out with lace curtains. I first met Steve Goof and wore all of his rings, dragon skull and silver urchins, while he chalked his cue and swept off his coat, black, lined in lurid red, matador. A skinhead, skins tattooed to his forehead, followed me out onto the street, still carrying his pitcher, offering me a handkerchief covered in someone else's blood, because your eyes are so sad. We invited Lisa's mother, who smoked sweet caperols, drank straight gin. Greg held my ankles in the high Roman fashion, my legs in Egyptian tights on his lap. He traced the sphere of the ankh, his dog panting beside us. You're a good girl, he said, and I saw the hieroglyph on her head, a diamond. There was a cloudburst, and we stayed out in the rain without umbrellas, talking about love. Janet brushing away her black forelock, explaining, Ecstasy, you were so...